Listener Production. Friday afternoon. Hello, listeners. Welcome back for another episode of Just the Gist, a weeklyish podcast in which ordinarily Rosie Waterland and I, Jacob Stanley, give you just the gist of what you need to know about a story we think you'll find interesting enough to share at a dinner party. And as you know, Rosie's still on a little bit of a break looking after her health. She will be back very soon, though. In the meantime, We've been having some fun with some really sensational guest hosts, and this week is no exception. We've got Linda Mariano, whose name I have been pronouncing as Marigliano up until this point, so I do apologise. Welcome, Linda Mariano. Thank you. You know what? You can pronounce it any way that you like. Unless we're pronouncing it in the fully Italian way, my (laughs) relatives will not be really happy. So it's like, it's... I'm meant to be saying it as Marigliano, but uh-huh. I just, I just don't. Okay. I'm a naughty girl. I simplify it. You've made your life a bit easier. I've made my and life And the lives a of others easier. around you as well. So Mariano, Riggles, I've been called the Rig, like just do whatever you want. Ooh, Riggles. Riggles. I might use that for the rest of this episode. <laughs> we'll see Riggles. how it feels as we go. Well, Riggles, before we get into this week's story, Tell could you more. please give us just the gist of who you are and what you do? Oh, boy. I started off in terms of my career by working in radio mm-hmm. and I worked as a radio broadcaster for many years as part of the Triple J and ABC family. Mm-hmm. Now I've left the day-to-day radio world Mm -hmm. and I live in the podcasting world. Uh So I've got a listener podcast, which is all about new music releases called The Spin, Mm -hmm. which is out every Friday. And I have one that is a lot more of a vulnerable storytelling kind of real life documentary style one mm-hmm. called Tough Love, mm-hmm. which came out in 2021 and there'll be a new season out early 2023. Oh, good. There is a follow-up coming. Yeah, there's a follow-up. Terrific. Yeah. I can't wait to listen to it because I feel like it's going to really resonate with me because you and I sort of had similar um, scenarios at the beginning of the pandemic where our plans to be overseas oh, all sort of boy. fell apart because... I was living in Melbourne prior to that and just as I had given away or sold all my belongings, put a little bit of stuff into storage so I could head off to South America for a year, the borders all slammed shut. But I'm so interested to hear your experiences where you've had to sort of pivot and come up with different plans than what you'd had in mind because of a pesky little pandemic that got in the way. I think what it did ultimately was, and I... I mean this so sincerely, it accelerated my growth as a person Mm -hmm. going through a shitstorm like that, Mm -hmm. right? Like when you go through something where your plans fall through and you're you're meeting your situation with such resistance. Mm -hmm. So for me, I was separated from my partner. I couldn't move overseas to Mm -hmm. be with him in L.A., I found myself with all of my belongings being having shipped over to LA. I moved in, back in with my dad. It was like this entire cluster F yeah. of, oh, my God, I'm so resistant to what is going on right now. Yeah. How can I make peace with it, not be resentful, mm. still keep my relationship up, feel like I'm working on myself as a person, not be a bratty teenager to my dad who's so lovely and letting me stay back in my old teenage bedroom. Mm. It was like this whole kind of swarm of things that eventually gave me the strength, I think, to not only, I think, become a better kind of version of myself Mm -hmm. um, but also a different sort of broadcaster and host Uh because it made me realise that maybe it was time to try something new. Uh All of my other work that I was so reliant on, big hosting gigs, doing stuff in front of a camera, all of these things that are so adrenaline focused and with the energy of others, Mm -hmm. it was like all of a sudden I had to Mm self-soothe and figure out a project that maybe I could just do that 
could mean something so special to me. Mm-hmm. And I think I know that's where Tough Love was born from and I know that that's why it's been like such a meaningful project. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. I think it's going to resonate with a lot of people when you describe it that way because, yeah. you know, we've all had to evolve yeah. significantly. Now, before we get into the story, I've been told that you have a funny little story of your own that you maybe oh. share at dinner parties from time to time. All I know it is something that involves a photograph, a rat, <laughs> and a rash. You know what I'm talking about? Okay, first of all... I feel like I know exactly who told you about this. <laughs> and secondly, this is not something I have ever said at a dinner party because <laughs> this is something not even my family knows about this. Mm. I think the person that told you is one of, honestly, three people that I've told. This is a top secret little bit of goss. <laughs> well, about... I'm not going to confirm who my source is. I have so, to protect them. I don't even... I don't even know where to begin. Like, does this story even have an end? So I'll tell you what happened. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So during (laughs) lockdown, I live right near a park. Mm. And, of course, I'm I'm an Nigel. I I live alone. You know, my partner's still overseas. And so every day I do what everyone does. It's just like loop-de-loop, walk around the park, Mm -hmm. get a little coffee, whatever. So one day, it's during peak lockdown in Sydney in 2021, I was going for my walk around the park and I see this gorgeous little family, like I assume they're siblings because they all kind of look similar, Mm -hmm. of children playing on this little set of steps that's in the park. And I'm FaceTiming my partner at the time. Mm -hmm. And I turn, like I turn the camera around so he can see them and I'm like, look at these cute little kids, Mm -hmm. aren't they so sweet? And there's, like, one that's really little. He looks maybe three years old. There's a girl that's about five or six and there's a boy that's a little bit older. So Mm -hmm. they're, like, these three siblings that are, like, playing there. And then I look closer and I go, oh, my God, they're petting a massive rat. Ah! (laughs) Like a huge rat, like one of those chicken-sized Rats mm-hmm. and it's obviously wandered out from the bush, oh. and it's just—it's the thing is, it's not even running away. They're oh. just sitting on these stairs, like petting it, petting this like rodent. Oh. So they're just sitting there playing with it, and I'm Facetime my partner, and I've gone, "Oh, look how cute that girl's little bowl cut is!" And they're like, "Oh my god, there's a rat there." <laughs> the girl comes up to me, and she's—you know how some kids are just so confident and gung ho—and she was like. Hello, who are you talking to? And I went, Oh, I'm talking, I'm talking to my boyfriend. Mm. And she went, Can I take your phone, please? And I went, uh, yeah, like he was so shocked. And I couldn't say no. So I said, Oh, yeah, sure. So I gave her my phone. She swipes away the FaceTime. She opens the camera app and she starts taking photos mm. of the rat, of her brother, like of her brothers playing with this rat like touching its tail, like petting its back. She's taking photos using my phone. Mm -hmm. No one else has noticed this for some reason. I don't know where their parents are, what's going on, if they've got an older person that's like looking after them. Eventually she gives me my phone back (laughs) and I can hear that my partner has been talking like through the phone through the phone a couple of metres away mm. and he's like, take your phone back, take your phone back. <laughs> She's got germs on her hands. She's going to be diseased. Just take your phone uh. back. Anyway, so she gives me my phone back and I'm like, oh, maybe you should just just let, just let the rat, just let the rat go. There's oh. a nice playground over there. You could just go play. And they knew it was a rat. They weren't. They knew it was a rat. It was a possum they knew it was a rat. And, oh. the girl, and the girl was so, you know, I've shortened this story, but the girl was so confident. She was talking the whole time. She's like, Here's our rat. We found him. We're going to give him a name. Oh. She, like, picked up. Her, one of her brothers had picked up, like, a big leaf and was, like, playing with its oh. hair and the leaf and stuff. They're all touching it. I take my phone back and my partner, Magnus, is basically shouting at the, mm. He's like, take your phone back. Take your phone back. Don't don't touch where she's touched it. Go wash your hands now. And I was like, surely it's, surely it's fine. And then finally these two other women walk past behind me and they go, oh, my God, those rats have such diseases. Get those kids away from that rat. The kids are still playing with it. I start to kind of quietly internally freak out, Mm. so I walk straight to the 
bathroom mm. that that's next door and I wash my hands, I hang up on my partner, it's, you know, it's fine. I think that it's fine. Mm. And then <laughs> oh. the next day <laughs> I wake up and my two fingers, oh. so on my right hand, my, what's this one, my po- pointed index, index yeah. and my middle finger uh-huh. have got rash all over them uh, and the top of my middle uh, finger is about five times the size. Uh, it's completely swollen, ballooned out. Uh, from it touching. Was, uh, I don't, thing is, I don't, I don't know. It seems like too much of a wild coincidence. Mm-hmm. That has never happened on my fingers. Like mm-hmm. I, I haven't been doing anything with those fingers. There's nothing mm-hmm. special going on. <laughs> I eventually, it hurts so much. I don't know if you've ever had a, just a crazy swollen finger, but it was throbbing the whole time. I ended up having to go to a doctor a couple of days later because it didn't go down. She gave me antibiotics. She said she didn't know what it was. Mm. Eventually, after a week, my finger went down, but I've got pictures of my finger when it happened. I started calling it my rat COVID. <laughs> <laughs> anyway... Your friend mm. must have been one of the only people that for some reason I sent a picture of the rat to. <laughs> well, now you know we have to source that picture I've and we got, have to put I, it on I've the Just the Gist Instagram. I can, I can, yeah, I feel like I need to blur the children's names out because I don't know what their rat COVID oh, ended yeah. up looking like. Blur them, that's fine. All we want to see is the chicken-sized rat. I'm going to show you this rat. The diseased giant rat. Oh, gosh. Well, look, part of me regrets well, asking note, you to tell that story, I'll be honest. Um, my skin's crawling. How about yours, Lindsay? <laughs> Ooh, okay. okay. Well, um, let's let's treat this story I'm about to tell you as a little bit of a palate cleanser okay. then, maybe. You ready for us to jump on in? I am ready. Okay. This one is quite ridiculous. And I was inspired to do it because last week I made the huge error of going to see Jurassic World Dominion. Have you... Have you been to see it? I feel like I heard someone talking about I haven't seen it. And you should not. Okay. (laughs) It's horrendously, offensively (laughs) bad. You know who else hated it? Sue the T-Rex, who is the subject of this week's episode. Have you ever heard of Sue the Tyrannosaurus Rex? Not at all. Not at all. Okay. Well, we'll start with the basics. Sue is the largest, most complete fossil of a Tyrannosaurus Rex that's ever Mm -hmm. been found on this planet and is currently on display in a museum in Chicago. And Sue has a Twitter account with 81,000 followers from around the world. And on Sue's Twitter, you can find Sue's sassy hot takes as an apex predator here in the modern world who's cheering on the birds in their plot to take over the entire planet. Now, Sue identifies as a non-binary murder bird because experts can't conclusively determine Sue's gender, so Sue chooses to use they, them pronouns in all of their tweets. And Sue was discovered and became a star right around the time that the original Jurassic Park book and movie was released, early 90s. And Sue changed paleontology forever and sparked a second gold rush. For dinosaur bones. So this week I am serving just the gist of Sue mm. and how Sue became the queen of the Cretaceous over the last few decades. Now, last year we did an episode about the first ever dinosaur gold rush that you might have heard of, the Bone Wars. <laughs> Ring a bell? No? No, the Bone Wars sounds really enticing though. <laughs> It's a very, very catchy name. Really catchy title. Really pricks Real up the ears. going on there. Yep. Okay. Um, the Bone Wars um, was sort of sparked by this race between two very infantile men in the late 1800s who were in this intense competition to be the one who discovered the most new species of dinosaurs. Mm-hmm. And we did an episode on them called Bone Wars. It's a hilarious saga because the men involved were just so extraordinarily petty and their rivalry descended into all these childish antics like sabotaging each other's dig sites and literally just pegging rocks at each other. Like that's the level it descended to. Go back and listen to it if you haven't yet. That was the first dinosaur rush, as I mentioned, 
And it was motivated by glory and mm-hmm. fame and academic credit, whereas the dino rush that Sue started was all about commerce and cash because Sue's discovery led to a change in ownership laws and then also the auction where Sue was sold shifted the commercial values of fossil upwards substantially and we assume forever. Mm. Now, before we jump in, did you ever go through a bit of a dinosaur phase as a kid? You and I are very similar age and mm. I feel like we grew mm. up in like the peak of dinosaurs yeah. as a fad. Did yeah. you ever have a little stint? I mean, I, I wasn't obsessed with dinosaurs, but I was obsessed with Jurassic Park. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I was obsessed with Jeff Goldblum. I mm-hmm. was obsessed with the, oh, my God, now I've forgotten the guy that dies who's the Seinfeld dude. Oh, uh, on Seinfeld, and he's Newman. Newman, yeah. yes. You know, so I didn't go through the typical just dinosaur obsession, but I was obsessed with Jurassic Park. Uh-huh. Favourite dinosaur? Oh, oh, I don't even know. Well, for most people, it was the T-Rex oh, yeah. from Jurassic Park. Maybe Velociraptor. I like the one that spat personally. The first Tyrannosaurus skeletons that were ever discovered were found shortly after the Bone Wars were completed. So one was found in 1900. The next one was then found in 1902, both in Montana. And one of them was given the name Tyrannosaurus rex, whereas the other one, other one was named Dynamosaurus imperiosus. And when the scientists realised they were actually both the same species, they just sort of arbitrarily mm. went eeny, meeny, miny T-Rex. So T-Rex was like this close to having a name that sounded very much like a spell one of the kids with the wands <laughs> would Dynam- do. What was that? Dynamosaurus? Dynamosaurus imperiosus. Oh, my God. It is very Very Hogwarts, Hogwarts isn't it? Uh-huh. Yes. Uh, between then, when they found those first Dynamosaurus slash T-Rex skeletons and 1990, only about a dozen T-Rex skeletons were found, all of them in North America, and all of them were missing like 60 to 90% of their bones. And then one day in August 1990, a woman named Susan Hendrickson was trekking around in the Badlands in South Dakota when she stumbled across Sue, and Mm -hmm. Sue changed the game. Sue wasn't just out for a hike. She was a fossil hunter and she was working there with a group of fossil and mineral hunters called the Black Hills Institute. And they were on an expedition to find some fossils, maybe some crystals they could dig up and hopefully some of them would be in good enough condition that they might be able to sell them for a few grand. And the Black Hills Institute was there at that time by the invitation of the guy who owned the land And it was pretty common practice back then for landowners to let fossil hunters come and just sort of scout around their properties and see what they could find. They were welcome as long as they didn't make a mess and they were honest about anything they took and they paid a fair price for anything valuable, usually less than Mm $1,000 for anything they took away with them, particularly fossils. Or in most cases, the landowner got nothing except credit for having been the owner of the land where the item was found, should the item ever end up on display in a museum somewhere. So basically they just would turn up to a property on the inkling that there might be something cool there and they would just kind of brush the ground without making too much of a mess to see where stuff could be. That's right, yeah. Okay. Often they were on the lookout for places that had cliff faces because that's sort of a shortcut to see through the layers of time. So they'd be looking for particular types of properties. It wouldn't just be random stabs in the dark. They'd be thinking about geographical areas of significance where the chances were good they were going to find um, decent things. Um, But, yeah, in this particular instance, the guy who owned the land had actually said, hey, can you please come out and check out my property? I reckon I've probably got something here which they did somewhat reluctantly because they were already working on some very rich discoveries at a property nearby. So they were sort of coming and doing it out of politeness Mm. in this particular week when they were there camping and scouting around. Now, on that particular day when Susan found Sue, the others in her group had gone to town to sort out some car troubles they were experiencing and Susan wanted to stay on the ranch so she could keep going looking in particular, more closely at a cliff that was a few kilometres away Mm. from where they'd set up camp. 
she thought that could possibly yield some good finds and they weren't going to get any other opportunity to go over there. So she trekked out to the base of the cliff and as soon as she got there, straight away, she spotted the telltale fragments of fossils scattered all over the ground. And then all she had to do was look up just above eye level to see what was clearly a bunch uh-huh. of fossilised vertebrae and ribs and what looked like it might have been a huge femur literally jutting Whoa. out of the rock. Like you couldn't miss them. Rosie's boyfriend, Caleb, would say they stuck out like dog's balls. Like you really? Dog's balls do stick out. They're, I'll post photos of some dog's balls for everyone <laughs> as a clear comparison. Okay, so today you can look forward to a rat. <laughs> Uh, some dog's balls, um, and that's probably about it. And these bones. <laughs> and these bones. So yeah, you can see what you think is more obvious, the dog's balls or the we'll femur and ribs sticking out of the cliff. Now, in her words, Susan said the fossilised bones were just dribbling down the rock face. Like wow. a lot of their work had already been done, been done for them um, because the cliff was just eroding day by day because of the elements. And she was very excited by what she'd just stumbled across. Whatever it was was clearly very big and she wanted to show the others as soon as possible. So she gathered up some of the bone fragments from the base of the cliff and that included a vertebra and maybe a rib or two, trotted back to the group's campsite and when she showed the others the fossils, the leader of the group, who was also one of the co-founders of Black Hills Institute, a guy called Pete Larson, told Everyone in the group, he was pretty sure Susan had found a Tyrannosaurus Rex, which was very significant. So first thing next day, Susan led the whole group of six fossil hunters out to the cliff face and they all agreed they needed to hit pause on everything else they were working on and just focus their attention on getting this skeleton, which they really, really, really hoped would turn out to be a T-Rex, out of the rock. And that was going to mean digging from the top of the cliff 10 metres down to get to the bones and then very carefully remove each one of them one by one, not even realising at that time how many of those bones there were going to turn out to be, which ended up being more than 250. Wow. I just, Mm -hmm. how would you even do that? Because my my image of kind of archaeology and fossil hunting Mm. is I think there's a super cute scene that's ingrained into my memory as a child of Sam Neill with the little brush. Yes. Like brushing Mm -hmm. in Jurassic Park. And I think, because my dad's a hairdresser, so we had just this abundance of like combs and brushes and things at our home. And I I remember taking like a brush and I used to kind of brush around the backyard (laughs) and pretend that I was kind of like digging up fossils and and rocks. But if you were digging through a cliff, To get to bones that you didn't even know were there. Mm-hmm. Not only would that be hard, but I imagine it was probably dangerous too, would it be? Uh, I'm not sure about physical danger for them, you mean? Yeah. yeah. Um, I don't know that it was necessarily don't, quite possibly. Would it be just like so slow. Could have been. I can't imagine it was like, you know, free of any sort of risk because, of yeah. course, you could fall off the cliff and, yeah. yes, you're using these big tools. So, of course, things can go wrong. Um, one of the big dangers, though, was as they were digging down that they might damage some Ruin. other fossils yeah. on the way. So they had to kind of take it slow and, you know, they can't just go in there with a bulldozer to get yep. there immediately. So it took a bit of time. took them 17 days working from dawn till dusk. But that was all a labour of love for them as they went. Any bits that were broken were quickly, quickly sort of glued back together and then they'd be wrapped up in wet fabric and then coated in plaster so they were in this protective shell that made it safe for them to move all the bones back to the lab. And as they kept finding more and more pieces, they started to get genuinely giddy about how complete the skeleton seemed Mm. to be. They thought it was going to be pretty close to a 100% complete fossil, which was a remarkable find. And they knew that it was going to set a new record Possibly not only for the fact that it was so complete, but also for size, because this was a really, really big animal they were digging up. And, of course, they named it Sue in honour of Susan, who'd been the one to discover it. And they offered the landowner, a guy called Morris Williams, $5,000 for the skeleton, which was actually a lot more than anyone had ever paid a landowner for a fossil in a raw state. 
what just to interrupt, what year was this? This is nineteen ninety. Yep. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the dinosaur trend hadn't yet really yeah. taken off. Yeah. So the value of fossils was fairly low, and this Morris guy happily accepted the five grand. And when the news of the discovery hit the press, he very happily spoke to them about how funny he thought it was that he'd been out riding his horse past that cliff for decades, but he just hadn't ever looked up high enough to notice that there were bones dripping out of it bit by bit. And Neil and Pete Larson, the guys who'd co-founded and co-owned Black Hills Institute, told the media... Their plan was they were going to clean the bones up themselves Mm -hmm. using their own labs and using their own people and then they'd build a new museum in their hometown, Hill City, where they'd put Sue on display for the world to come and see. And Hill City was a very small town. We're talking fewer than 600 people living there at the time. And you can imagine how excited they were when they heard that they were going to get this world-class tourist attraction in their little backwater town and suddenly they were going to be put on the map. So Sue Mania really took over there and the Black Hills Institute became the local heroes for what they'd been able to discover. Once they had all the 250-something pieces of Sue's skeleton safely back at their labs, the hard work began to preserve each piece and document everything as they went and they reckoned it was going to take them about two to three years for them to have the whole skeleton ready to put on display. And Neil and Peter said they didn't want any help or any grants from the government or any academic institution because they're very much of the Ron Swanson libertarian Uh ilk. They hate bureaucracy, hate rules, hate red tape. They're all about capitalism and personal freedoms and smoked meats and moustaches. And that approach really ruffled the petticoats of a lot of academics who did not like the fact that Pete and Neil Larson weren't affiliated with Mm -hmm. any of the major museums or universities And it drove them absolutely crazy that they and the Black Hills Institute crew were calling themselves paleontologists when none of them had a master's or a PhD that technically made them a qualified paleontologist. Yes, they just declared themselves to be paleontologists. Wow, confidence, man. Uh Uh-huh. Ross Geller would have been furious. It didn't go down well. The academics really didn't like that there was no big governing body with any sort of oversight to make sure that they were using the right methods and the right tools. Like, of course, operating in good faith, they Mm. were trying to do their very best job, but they hadn't received, you know, the official training. So there were a lot of people who were very nervous that they were the ones who were getting to work with the most significant find of the decade, possibly the century. So there was lots of hand-wringing going on and also lots of resentment that was aimed at the Larson brothers, but they were very happy to overlook all that disdain. Mm -hmm. And they were also happy to let scientists from all around the world come and have a look at Sue's bones. And they were also letting thousands and thousands of tourists come and watch them while they were working preparing and preserving all the bones and getting them ready for display. Like they'd sort of turned their lab into a tourist destination before the museum itself was even ready. And they made pretty good headway over the next 18 months preparing Sue. They put in many, many, many hours of work. And Peter and Neil invited reporters pretty regularly to come and get updates on how they were progressing because the two of them loved a bit of press coverage. They wanted to see their picture and their quotes in papers as frequently as possible because it helped to promote their business. And at the end of the day, that's what they were all about, capitalists to the core. And there was growing public interest over the course Mm -hmm. of this time caused the Jurassic Park novel bestseller already. And everyone knew Steven Spielberg was in the process of making his little movie adaptation. So Tyrannosaurus Rex was definitely having a moment. And then in May of 1992, dozens of FBI agents and National Guard soldiers slash officers, whatever the term is, rocked up at the Black Hills Institute very early in the morning and announced they were there to confiscate Sue. 
and they set up the entire institute as a crime scene and told the Larson brothers that the US attorney had reason to believe Sue's skeleton had been stolen from federal land and therefore had to be given back to the government. What? Uh-huh. And they were going to be doing a very thorough investigation into the location where Sue was found, the process involved in the dig, the Black Hills Institute as a whole. And while all that was happening, Sue would have to be kept in a neutral facility away from the Larsons and from their team so that they couldn't just sneakily hide Sue away somewhere or potentially even sell Sue on. And over the course of the next three days, a massive raid happened at the Black Mm. Hills Institute and all the employees knew there was nothing they could do to stop it. If they even tried, they were going to be arrested. So they were put in this position where they had a choice. They could either let the National Guard folks who'd never touched fossils before in their lives try their best to pack up and transport these very fragile bones and just cross their fingers and hope nothing got too badly damaged or... They could get in there and they could carefully repack all the fossils in the fabric and the plaster just like they'd done out in the field when they first found Sue. Oh, my God. That sounds like a nightmare. Their hearts were broken, but the safety and well-being of Sue was their number one priority. So the BHI team did all the packing and helped with the move, but that didn't mean that Pete and Neil were willing to go down without a fight though, because they were pissed this was going on. And they chose to make the raid as visible as they could possibly make it to try to stoke public outrage. They organised the locals to come and protest 24-7 and they were getting news outlets to come along and report on the drama that was going on and they tried to stir up as much drama as they could over the course of the three days of the raid. There were dozens of people outside the institute waving these protest signs and pleading for the government to release Sue and stop being so cruel and petty and yelling the word shame at the feds as they were removing Sue piece by piece. And they really, really went for the drama here when they brought in groups of kids from the local schools and got them to sing the national anthem while they had tears streaming down their faces And as a result, of course, all the reports were super dramatic. And I've got my favourite one here that I want to read to you. Go on. At 7.30am on May 14th, 1992, something happened which will forever alter the way every citizen of Hill County, South Dakota, feels about government. For the school children who witnessed it, it may well become the defining moment of their lives. Like it, this is this a full, like, think of the children right. <laughs> moment. Exactly. And they put the children front and centre to make it super clear. You are traumatising these kids who have fallen in love with Sue, fallen in love with the idea of having Sue in their hometown, and you're just being petty it's like and you're cruel, breaking up the community. Mm-hmm. That's right. So all around the country particularly Republican and Libertarian types who are opposed to government intervention Mm. were furious at what was going on and at the Clinton administration for allowing this to happen on his watch. The whole thing was quite the to-do and there was lots of footage day after day of the Black Hills Institute team weeping on camera as Sue was taken away bit by bit in trucks to go and sit (laughs) in a shipping container while its fate was decided. I told you this story was ridiculous. Like, I'm just even trying to picture how, like, okay, uh, uh, Timmy, Jacob, uh, Eliza, you you come to the front. Mm -hmm. Cry. Cry harder. <laughs> cry harder. Now sing. Oh, sing. Making them cry and making them sing and then crying and crying themselves on camera. Mm-hmm. Like, I want to Google image what these people looked like. I need to, because oh. I'm picturing, I'm picturing the most kind of wild characters mm-hmm. that would play them in a movie. Like, well, you can watch it because what? it was filmed and it's all been archived and it was all put into a documentary I'll talk about towards the end here called Dinosaur 13. Okay, okay. And so you can actually see the kids bawling their eyes out and there was even talk of the loggers from across the state of South Dakota all descending on this city so they could block off all the streets and stop the government from taking Sue away. Like it was escalating towards that sort of stage until... 
thankfully cooler heads prevailed and uh-huh. said, you're all just going to end up arrested if you do something like okay. that. So let's not go committing felonies here because hopefully it's all just going to work out in the end. As soon as they could, Neil and Peter Larson filed a lawsuit against the government so they could sue for sue and then <laughs> twist the landowner, Morris Williams, came forward to say, excuse me, everyone, hi, uh, it was definitely my land where Sue was found and Sue is my property. I am her owner. So what do you think you're doing confiscating her? Can someone explain that to me? And Pete Larson was like, well, we don't know what he's talking about. Sue is definitely not his property. We own Sue fair and square. And Morris was like, no, no, that $5,000 bought the Black Hills Institute the privilege of access to my property and it bought them the chance to dig up and clean all those lovely bones they've been having so much fun with, but I never said they could keep them. And Pete was like, that sneaky little bitch. Now it made sense to him why Morris hadn't wanted to draw up a contract for the transaction. He said he just wanted to do oh a handshake God. deal. Because that's what I was going to ask, was. Was, is there any paperwork that goes alongside this? Mm-mm-mm. It's just word of mouth. That's right. He said, my handshake and my word are as good as any contract. And then he's ended up playing these games. He's a my Holy word against yours kind of guy. So... That's where they found themselves in this dispute now over whether or not they had even purchased the dinosaur. And then another contender for ownership came forward, the Native American people who were the traditional owners of the land. So it turned out Morris was a member of the Sioux Nation, as in S-I-O-U-X, not Sioux Nation is in oh, like a fandom like for a SUE. Susie and the Banshees exactly. throwback. Yes. Okay. Uh, he was part of this Native American tribe, and that tribe put their argument out there that they believed Sue the skeleton was the property of Sue the tribe, not of the individual Morris. And the US attorney was like, can everyone please just shush? We're still pretty sure Sue was on federal land, and so that means. Sue belongs to the government and that's what we're here to prove. And this led into this months-long legal brouhaha where there were these four different parties all battling it out to determine who owns the bones. And then finally, in 1993, some decisions were made. The US government and the Sioux tribal leaders lost their battles first. It was proven that Sue was found on property owned by Morris, which, Mm. yes, happened Mm. to be part of the Sue reservation at one time and also happened to be being held in a trust with the US government. But at the end of the day, Morris was still the owner of the land and the judge made the very controversial decision that a fossil is, by definition, part of the land because of the mineralization process it's gone through. Wait, part of the land as in it's Morris's or the traditional custodians? Part of the land, which means it's owned by the landowner, which in this case was Morris. Was Morris. Yeah. So the fossil is essentially part of Morris's real estate portfolio. Make sense? Yes. Mm-hmm. It's not an item. It's literally part of the land. And he technically didn't have the right to sell any part of it without approval from the government. That was one of the conditions of the trust that the land was held in. So that meant, regardless of what the $5,000 from Pete Larson was intended to be paying for, at the end of the day, the transaction was void because Morris didn't have the approval of the US government, who took care of the trust, to make any transactions like that. And therefore, Sue still belonged to Morris. And that judgment had a big impact for landowners all across the USA Mm -hmm. because of that technicality that the fossil is part of your land and therefore it is part of your property portfolio. So if you've got a fossil on your land, it's yours. You can do what you like with it. You can keep it. You can sell it. You can crush it up and snort it if you want to. (laughs) And we can't stand in your way. That became the law across most of the states over in the US. Wait, so, yes, it's it's Morris's mm-hmm. who came out of the woodworks. 
Then what happened to Sue? We'll find out. So the Larson brothers obviously were not very happy and they kept stomping their feet and they said they would keep fighting for Sue, but that cause was long lost, especially because in the process of raiding the BHI to take Sue away, the FBI had also found a whole lot of evidence of naughty little crimes that the team at BHI had been doing for the last few decades, smuggling, money laundering, customs fraud, theft from government property... And as they're digging to one crime, that would then lead them to uncovering another one, which would then lead to another and another, until by 1995, once they'd been through all the documents they had at the Institute, they were ready to prosecute 150-something charges against BHI, Pete, Neil, and a handful of other employees. And if they'd been found guilty of all the crimes, they were looking at up to, like, 350 years in prison between the bunch of them. Like, they were taking very seriously these felonies. And before and during their trial, Pete and Neil Larson declared again and again they were the victims of a really unfair witch hunt and the people they blamed for sending the feds after them and leading this witch hunt were the stuffy, old, snobby, institutional academics who they felt looked down their noses at Black Hills Institute and all the other commercial fossil traders out there. And there was and is a fair bit of animosity between commercial and academic paleontologists in inverted commas. Not all of them, but speaking generally broad strokes, academics look at the unqualified fossil hunters like you're a bunch of cowboys, you're pirates, you go out and pillage and plunder for profit, whereas what we do is purely for the love of science – Whereas the fossil hunters like the Larsons look at the academics and say, you're just a bunch of nerds who sit behind a desk all day. We do the real work. Uh-huh, you, We're out there. We're exactly. punks. You've got soft hands and you would have no mm, idea mm. what a day in the field is really like. We're the real experts in paleontology. You're about the theory, but it's the practical that really matters. And so the Larson brothers believed that the efforts to take them down and put them in jail were just part of a conspiracy to put an end to commercial fossil Mm. hunting forever. Once the trial was complete, uh, the accused were found guilty on eight different felony charges and Peter was the one who got the most severe sentence. He spent two years in prison. And if he was here, he would tell you he thought that was extremely unfair and he was just being made an example of. Mm. But he'd also tell you he spent about a million dollars on his legal defence, but he reckons the publicity around the trial scored him about $20 million worth of free advertising his business. Which is what they kind of wanted uh-huh. all along, these rock star punks. They were looking for a bit of attention and yes. they certainly got it. And so while Pete was behind bars, his fossil hunting and trading business was absolutely blowing up because as 96 rolled around, Dinosaur Fever mm-hmm. still raging, the sequel to the Jurassic Park book, bestseller, and the sequel movie was in the works as well. Plus, have you ever heard of this cult classic movie called Theodore Rex that Whoopi Goldberg was in? (laughs) What? (laughs) Was it a real, was it animated or was it like? Animatronic. So. What? What's animatronic? Super quick. The puppets that are controlled by like engineered gears and. Oh, mm. no. But you know what that also reminds me of? What was that, like, sitcom that was dinosaurs? Was that just called dinosaurs? Dinosaurs, yeah. So think exactly that aesthetic of those sorts of puppets. It was creepy. It was a bit Mm. Beetlejuice. It was a bit Tim Burton y in parts, like puppets that had kind of gruff, cynical voices. Yeah. Yeah, and one of those things that it's sort of sitting just on the edge of the uncanny valley yeah, in the sense it's, that it, I, it's off I don't want to be there. It's yeah. creeping me out a little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. giving me nightmares. Yeah. It's making the children cry. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, films like that were being made because dino fever was really taking off, and that meant that dinosaur fossils very much in demand and customers from around the world were placing requests for fossils that they wanted to buy, and we're talking about private collectors mm-hmm. as well as major museums here, They were willing to pay more than they'd ever paid before and they approached BHI and said, look, we don't really care how you get these fossils. We just really want you to get them for us if you wouldn't mind. 
Plus, then they also had landowners inviting them to come and have a look around their properties, and it sort of became standard practice for the landowners to get 10 to 20% wow. of the selling price for any of the fossils that were found on their land. And so thousands of folks were inspired to quit their jobs and go and become full-time fossil hunters slash amateur paleontologists so they themselves could get a slice of the second dino gold rush pie. And so if the academics really had been running a scheme with the government to try to eliminate commercial fossil hunting, it had really backfired to them because things just picked up more and more momentum. And even though they'd lost Sue and they were tried for felonies and misdemeanours, in the end it was a net win for the Larson brothers in quite a big way. And I should note here... Mm -hmm. At this time, they were the owners of the second largest Tyrannosaurus rex that had ever been discovered, which was also the second most complete skeleton of a Tyrannosaurus. Its name was Stan, and it was there on display in the Black Hills Museum, just like they'd been intending to do with Sue. So all their dreams really had come true and business was booming. But we're going to circle back to the Larsons towards the end of this story because I want you to see just how they continue to play the victim even though they're some of the most successful people in their field. Before we come back to them, though, Morris. By late 1996, he was ready to sell Sue and, of course, he just laughed off any suggestions that he might choose to donate Sue to a museum or university. We're talking about the biggest oldest, most complete Tyrannosaurus rex. Like, this was the supreme specimen and might remain so forever. They might never find a T-Rex bigger than this one. So he absolutely was not just giving away an asset like that. And after he'd weighed up his options, he decided he was going to go with an auction. And his auction house of choice was Sotheby's. So Sue, still in the boxes it had been in since the raid in 1992, was sent to New York to be prepared for the auction. And there was a decent amount of fear in the scientific community that a wealthy private buyer might purchase Sue to be used as a decoration for a home or office and kept away from the public and from scientists who hadn't yet had the chance to properly get in there and learn what they could potentially learn from Sue's skeleton because Sue had been sitting in storage for such a long time. There was also a very patriotic fear that Sue might be snapped up by a person or company from overseas who would take Sue away from its homeland and the Americans didn't want that. And the team at BHI were determined that they were going to start raising enough funds so they could buy Sue and they rustled up just over a million dollars they'd be able to play with. Once the auction started, they were eliminated within about 12 seconds because the bids started jumping up in pretty large increments. And they were outbid by private buyers, sure enough, who wanted them in their collection, a hotel chain, a casino, the Smithsonian Institute, and then all of them were knocked out in the final few minutes of the auction. The last two bidders in the race took it over $6 million and then over $7 million. And then in the end, the winning bid was $7.6 million from the Field Museum in Chicago, which might not sound like a huge amount right. of money today. Yes. But back then, it was absolutely unthinkable to most people, particularly paleontologists, that any fossil could sell for a number like this. The thought of it even going for six figures was kind of laugh not six figures, sorry, seven figures was kind of laughable. The fact that it'd be getting up there towards yes. Anywhere near $10 million just was astonishing and honestly quite horrifying to a lot of academics because they were like, if this is the sort of price fossils are gonna start selling for we're all going to be totally priced out of the market here. So it's only going to end up being wealthy individuals and corporations that can get their hands on fossils like these unless we go out there and get some sort of corporate sponsorship. We're kind of screwed. Yeah. But that's what the Field Museum had actually very cleverly done. They'd gone out and approached big companies like McDonald's and Disney 
and said, if you can give us some money, then you can become the proud sponsors <laughs> of Sue. And so when they won the auction, that's what happened. Sue is brought to you by Mickey Mouse and is Ronald it? McDonald. Is it yes, actually? Yes. And they're involved in a lot of promotional activities and material because they essentially bought that when they contributed to the purchase of Sue. What's so wild is that each kind of, um, each party of people that you're describing have things that I love and hate about them. Mm -hmm. So with the academics, I'm like, shut your traps, like get out of those offices and get out and do the work with (laughs) those punks, Mm. you know. But at the same time, I'm like, oh, I've got to respect the theory. I've got to respect the history. They really mm. know the classicism of things. And then on the same time, like, I hate those punks that just uh, w- want fame. They just want to have a million followers on TikTok if they, you know, were yeah, alive yeah, today. Yeah. But I'm like, but they're also going out and just doing the work. Mm-hmm. That's like me not encouraging someone to be an amazing musical artist because they haven't gone to the Conservatorium of Music. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. that's not fair. But then having someone have the funds to buy this thing because they're going to whack a, like a sweet and sour sauce on its paw or something, <laughs> I'm like, oh, I hate you. But at the same time, genius, because how else are you going to get things done? Mm-hmm. Everybody needs to sell out to get what you want. That's right. Yep. When you know? you're in a capitalistic system, it's really difficult to work against it. Yeah. Yeah. So the Field Museum decided they were going to work in it and um, find a way to make it beneficial for the Disney Corporation and for McDonald's as well. So for the first two, three years while Sue was being prepared, the bones were being prepared as an exhibit Mm -hmm. that had been custom built in Disney World. So the only way you could go and see Sue is if you paid for a trip to Florida to go and see where she'd been placed. Wow. Yeah. Um, Which made Disney a lot of money. And McDonald's also paid for a tour where some of the bones went around the nation as well. And, of course, their branding was very, very clearly visible. So that did a lot to really sort of change the game. And, of course, immediately after the sale, the Larson brothers and their team tried to make sure that they were front and centre in the media's narrative, tried to make sure they got the credit for finding and excavating what was now officially the most valuable fossil that had ever been found, which you can't argue with. It is true. It feels a little bit sad and desperate that they just can't seem to let go. But it is true. They found Sue. They excavated Sue. Also, can I just say, where's the OG Sue, the woman that the thing was named after? Mm. Like, she's is she a silent person in this? Like, did she come forward? Well, is she is this her claim? Like, is she as famous as those other guys? Because she was kind of someone who dabbled in paleontology and she was also a rescue diver and an right. explorer. It was something she'd sort of dip in and out and in and out from time to time. Yes, she did talk to the media quite a bit. And in May 2000, when Sue was finally ready to be put on display in the Field Museum, Susan Hendrickson was invited as a guest of honour as the person who'd first found Sue. It was a very big, fancy unveiling ceremony and there was a huge amount of hype and media coverage. Pete Larson was very intentionally left off the guest list which was a slight he was, of course, deeply offended by. But rather than take the hint that he wasn't welcome at this event, he got Susan to bring him along as a guest so he could front up to all the media who no were there and so steal the spotlight. What the hell? How could you do that? You haven't been invited. Just to have the audacity uh-huh. to be like, Sue, you ta- you're taking me. Oh, but I've got a husband. No, you're taking me. I'll be your guest and we'll be the co-guests of honour there together. What the hell? The ego on this guy is outrageous next level. I have to see what this person's face looks like after this. I can't wait. You probably won't be surprised. I meant it when I said he loves a Ron Swanson moustache. Like, very much that sort of aesthetic. Um, So, yeah, he just... He will never be able to let (laughs) Sue go despite all of his other successes And this is where you need to watch this documentary, Dinosaur 13. It came out in 2014. So this is, what, 24 years after discovering Sue, 22 after losing Sue. 
It's got Pete, it's got Neil, it's got Susan, pretty much everyone else from the BHI appearing in it. It goes for 95 minutes and the entire time it's them talking about how poorly they'd been treated by the government and by the other villains in the piece like Morris. The reason it's called Dinosaur 13 is because Sue was the 13th Tyrannosaurus Rex that had been discovered. Unbelievable levels of melodrama in there. There's even a whole beat dedicated to Peter fighting back tears while he's talking about how every night after Sue was taken from him and put in storage, he would go down to the storage facility and he would stare through the window into the basement where he could see the container where Sue was being stored and he would verbalise his promise to her that he would get her out of there. Like, it's too far. And it's also incredibly one-sided. You only hear from pro-Black Hills Institute people, so you only get the perspective of their supporters and their position as the victims and the heroes while people like the government... Morris Williams, all the academics, they get the villain edit. And it's a lot of it is sewn together with archival footage from news reports at the time and footage they'd filmed themselves. And there <laughs> were even screenings at film festivals when the film was first released and the audience was encouraged to boo and hiss when Morris and the US attorney would come up on screen and then they were encouraged to give a standing ovation when Peter came out at the end of the film screening to do a Q&A. And throughout there is wow. zero mention of the fact that they owned Stan the T-Rex, the second biggest one that had ever been found. And so if you were to watch the film uncritically, you could walk away thinking these poor underdogs, they lost their one shot to own a Tyrannosaurus Rex because of a stupid government-enforced rule and a dodgy landowner who took advantage of it. And that is not the case. In fact, of all the T-Rex specimens that have been found since Sue, more than 50% were dug up and sold by Pete Larson and his team. So they basically had a monopoly on T-Rex fossils. Exactly. And they had Stan... And they even went to the lengths of suing several museums for using their intellectual property because other museums had been using bones that were replicas of Stan's bones to fill in gaps in their own T-Rexes. So Pete and Neil sued them for infringement on what they had decided (laughs) was their biological design, a 65-million-year-old dinosaur and they won those cases. What? Isn't that wild? Like there's like this collective delusion Mm -hmm. like what has happened to you as a child that you are that insecure as a man, like Mm -hmm. as an adult moving forward that you have to own things and have own things that you claim are your intellectual property Mm -hmm. that are outside your expansive already positions. Like, it's so wild. Uh Uh-huh. Honestly, the narcissism on this guy. The narcissism. When you watch... Full narcissistic delusion. They dedicate this ridiculous and unnecessary amount of time in Dinosaur 13 to him talking about when he was in prison, how he set up these educational classes for all the other inmates. Sure he didn't. (laughs) But he wants you to think he did and he wants you to be impressed. That's so telling about him and his character. These people these people still alive, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Got to meet them. Mm-hmm. Got to find them. I need to track them down. The latest thing I've heard is that they had a big falling out, Pete and Neil, and mm-hmm. things started to get very nasty and litigious. And so a judge ruled you're going to have to sell all of your assets, including Stan the T-Rex. And do you want to have a guess of how much Stan sold for? Okay, so Sue sold for seven? Sue sold for, it ended up being 8.3. And okay. if you adjust that to today's money, we're talking about like double that 16 mil for Sue. And Stan, I mean, would it be that? No, it would not be that much. It would be more. Mm-hmm. 20? Higher. Wait, I saw your tongue come out. That says a th- mm-hmm. th- th- 30? 32 million dollars. Holy mm-hmm. sh- Yep. Those underdogs, multi, multi millionaires, especially since that sale. And just P.S., when 
uh, Stan was sold. No one knew who'd bought Stan. This was in 2020. Yeah. They only found out recently because the buyer wanted to remain anonymous and it was only a couple of months ago someone figured out it was a museum in Abu Dhabi who just recently had Stan uh, I thought you. Were, I thought the punchline was going to be, and the punchline is Ariana Grande bought it <laughs> and she's writing it in her upcoming music video. Like, can't you just imagine? Fergie bought it. <laughs> Drake bought it. Okay. He's turned it into cutlery on his dining room table in Beverly Hills. Look out. Were that the case, they would not be the first celebs to do something like that. You know, like like it's the sort of thing that celebs would do. Yes. And that they do do. Yes. Well, Nicolas Cage famously had to give back a dinosaur skull that he'd purchased because it turned out it had been illegally smuggled out of Mongolia. And my favourite part of that story is... He was in a bidding war against Leonardo DiCaprio over oh, who was going to get this skull of a species called Tyrannosaurus batar, which is like a cousin of Tyrannosaurus rex. Nick Cage won and then had to give the skull back and he never got a refund. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, back to your original point. So Stan got sold like 30-something. $30 million. Wow. Yeah, that's right. So the bar has just continued to rise and rise and rise in terms of value for these <laughs> fossils. And these Black Hills Institute guys, they've continued to profit yeah, more and more from them. riding that wave. Yeah. I hate them. So it's still going on, this dinosaur gold rush. Um, And I'll wrap it up by just saying, look, for some academics, it's proven to be a dream for them. Whereas for other academics, it's been an absolute nightmare. The ones who consider it to be a nightmare really don't like that the pirate fossil hunters only care about getting high value fossils out of the ground cheaply and quickly. They want to keep their expenses down. So they don't care about all the contextual stuff mm. surrounding the fossils in the rock. They just want to get the bones out. They don't care about learning about the past. It's like a business as opposed to respecting the history. Exactly. And I heard one paleontologist talk about how he's really worried we'll never find any dinosaur DNA. Arguably, we probably shouldn't mm. because who knows what we would do with it. But it is something they're on the lookout for and they're really concerned that because the fossil hunters don't analyse the surrounding materials, they might, you know, just chuck out some dinosaur DNA that could be out there potentially. The ones who think that it's a real dream scenario they've landed in, they're just happy that there are more fossils to study than ever before. Mm. And one of the examples I heard one of them say is, look, we were finding one or two T-Rexes a decade up until this second gold rush began. And these days we're finding a new one every six months. So we're getting so much more information coming through because you can't deny that when you've got more fossils, there's more of an opportunity to learn. And there are some academics who think the pro-fossil hunters do a superior job out in the field because they have so much experience and they've got that, you know, on-the-job know-how that they've picked up over the years and they've learnt from people who've sort of given them these informal apprenticeships and it's made them really good fossil collectors. And by now, something like 18 million people have gone to see Sue in person and about 20 times that amount of people have seen replicas of Sue around the world because they're all the these other property. artificial suits. <laughs> They've paid for those specimens, yes. Um, so some of you out there, it's quite likely if you've ever seen a T-Rex skeleton, you've seen Sue or at least a replica of part of Sue. And that, dear Linda, is just the gist of Sue, the Queen of the Cretaceous. That is a lot more of a ride than you would expect for a fossil. I've got to, <laughs> I've got to look those guys up. You've got to see the documentary Dinosaur Thirteen. You pay to rent it on a few different outlets. Just Google it um, and choose one of them and watch it and just laugh, especially at the way they stage the protests to make them really tug on the old heartstrings. It's like. All of that. I'm picturing, like, you know, the guy that did Fire Festival and how he was mm. this kind of ego-driven businessman that was kind of swindling all these different things mm. at once. Yes. Like, I got such a, a work up over kind of watching that documentary that I'm like, oh, I'm ready. Mm-hmm. I'm ready. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Well, this one's going to get you really, really worked up because there is no criticism of this guy at all. Like whoever made this documentary had obviously fallen under the charms of Pete Larson in particular, and he is presented as the quintessential American hero fighting for individual freedoms and capitalist values, and he was done dirty. So go and watch it. It's frustrating at times. It's hilarious at times. And you mostly just want to see the archival footage if you're interested in this. And Linda, thank you so much for coming in and playing with us. It's been a treat. And I hope you've got some fun plans lined up for the weekend. What do I have planned for the weekend? Um, I am going to be, I think I'm going to be having some dumplings for one as Mm. I slob around the couch this evening. Mm. I'm going to hang out with my nephews because now that I'm back in Australia for a couple of months and I will be heading back overseas Mm -hmm. to be with my partner, I'm really trying to milk the nephew time Mm -hmm. as much as I can. So I'm going to see my nephews, going to see my nonna, and you know what? I went out last night, so I'm feeling a little shabby. Okay. <laughs> a, little bit, a little bit worse for wear, mate. Baby needs a massage. Like I mentioned, we're the same age, so can relate. <laughs> Especially post-pandemic, I've found any sort of social outing. Energy takes Oh, yeah, it takes a while me. to bounce back. Yeah, absolutely. Enjoy your dumplings. Enjoy your nephews. You. And everyone, don't forget, go and listen to Tough Love, Listen Thank to you. The Spin every Friday. Anywhere else we can find you? Um, I have a book that will be coming out next year. Uh-huh. And I guess, you know, I just pop up all over the place. Not in too many places. <laughs> I'm selective, but, you know, every now and again, you can see me on socials at Linda Mariano. You're on the gram from time to time. From time to time. Yes. Actually, go on there and check out the West Coast Cool ad you were in oh. recently because <laughs> that really hit the spot for me. All right, have a fantastic weekend, everybody. Love you all. Bye. Bye. Listener.